Thank you so much for having me. It is a real delight to be, delight to be with you, even if it's virtually, for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which would be food. It would be wonderful to be able to join you in person. Um, many of you who I know who are watching this have also become friends over the years, and you have very much been in our thoughts and prayers, as I'm sure you have also been thinking and praying of us. Who would have thought that something like this would have extended for quite so long with still so much uncertainty uh, surrounding it? And it's, I suppose, within that context, I'd love to be able to frame my, my remarks to you because there's so much that we're just thinking and seeing for the first time that we've taken for granted. As I've traveled around the world, I've always thought of shaking someone's hand as a formality, as a, just simply a polite act that you do. But now you also begin to realize what a privilege it is to actually to be able to reach out and to touch somebody and to make that kind of contact. And I think situations like this tend to have that effect and impact on us. Things that we've taken for granted, things that we've merely assumed, uh, things that we've never even really reflected on, now all of a sudden come to the forefront of our mind. In the developed world, this is probably the first time in most of our living memories that we are collectively faced with the issue of our mortality. It's the very first time that we're actually aware of the fact that we will not be here forever. And that is actually true for all of us. Uh, there will come a time when our life will end. Now, of course, the Christian faith turns this very much radically on its head in that we think this world will live forever and we will one day cease to exist. But actually, the biblical message is slightly different to that. It actually says we will live forever. The question is where, and one day this world as we know it will actually cease to exist. And so that raises, of course, some very, very big questions about ultimate destiny, life after death, and many other things as well, not all of which we're going to be able to address within the context of this particular talk, although I hope to touch maybe on a few of them. A few days ago in the British press, um, Tom Holland, who wrote the exceptionally well-known and well-received book Dominion, wrote this. He said, the sweep of coronavirus should present Christian leaders with an opportunity. Yet it is one that mainstream churches in this country seem to be fumbling, rather than speaking with the voice of prophecy, rather than explaining to a grieving nation, an anxious people, how the dead will be raised to uh, the blaze of eternal life, and rather than proclaiming the miracles and the mysteries that they uniquely exist to proclaim, church leaders now seem to have opted instead to talk like middle managers. And I remember uh, just hearing that and reading that and thinking, gosh, there's maybe more truth in that than some of us would like to admit. Because there is a hope that Christians should have at such a time like this. But it's not an unrealistic one. It's not one that says that despite everything that's going on in the world, we're never going to struggle, we're never going to wrestle, we're never going to find things difficult. I don't know what it's like for you right now, but I've been living in isolation more or less since the end of February. Actually, the last trip I made overseas, I was actually in KL. I came back uh, via Tokyo because that's where my routing was to the UK. And because I had a bit of a sore throat at the time, even though I don't think I had the virus, um, I obviously had to be in isolation and the lockdown happened. And so now for me, it's been really quite an extended period of time um, where I've been on my own. And of course, when you're in that particular situation, as I said, you, you look at things that you've seen before and you've thought of before, but you see them in a different way and in a fresh way. And therefore, maybe amongst all of the challenges that we're currently going through, there's also something too, which is so important when we're just caused to stop and to reflect and to ask and, and wrestle with some of these very big questions. So I'd like to share a few thoughts with you, if I may, out of the book of Romans in chapter 8. And these are incredibly well-known verses. They're ones that I've often thought of in, of, in the past uh, myself and have read almost every year uh, since I've been a Christian. Um, and I've actually read it much more than once a year because it's a passage that many people come back to. But it says something about the nature of what's written in here 
is that you can come to it in a different situation and it speaks a fresh and meaningful word. And that's what I'm hoping we might all enjoy, um, enjoy today. And if there are things which I don't touch on, then please do um, join us after the 5 p.m. service on the Instagram um, conversation we're having. Where I'll try to get through as many questions as I possibly can uh, while I'm with you. But of course, we have this, these very famous words. Let me just read just a small section, even though I'll be referring more widely to the chapter. Here's what it says. It says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now those are very, very well-known verses, and they're spoken in the midst of adversity and difficulty. Um, in verse 18, uh, Paul says, I consider the present trouble we're facing not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then it starts to talk about the groaning of creation and how we things seem to have gone wrong in this world. And then it talks about the challenge to our lives. And then it talks about the fact that we're living in hope of something we do not have and we are waiting for it patiently. And then it goes on to talk about how we find ourselves in weakness, unable and unknowing, even not knowing what to pray. And yet the Spirit can intercede for us. And then it then, of course, then starts to come into uh, these very, very profound words here. And it's very possible to read that final section of Romans 8 when we take it out of context, therefore, in an overly triumphalistic way, in an overly realized way, where we think, well, we're more than conquerors. What does that mean? Well, whatever situation in, I'm going to be fine, and I'll be feeling fine, and everything will be fine. As I said, I'm not sure how you've been wrestling with all of this, but there are some mornings when I wake up and I feel so excited and I can't wait to get into the day, just thinking about who I may be speaking to halfway around the world. And other times I wake up and I think, I just want to roll over and go back to sleep. Is it worth getting out of bed in the morning? And I think that's something of the roller coaster that we ride when we find ourselves in these kinds of challenging times. And what Romans 8 here isn't saying is, for Christians, they can look at all of these circumstances and say, we're more than conquerors, this doesn't affect me, because that's not the context in which it's given. It's saying, look, we will go through trial, and we'll go through hardship, and we'll go through difficulty, and we'll go through suffering. We may even, the sword, that's referring to death, we may even be killed. So it's not saying that we're going to be delivered out of this. When you're in a race, you're not looking for deliverance from that race, you're looking for endurance for it. And in this race of life, and as we run and go through it, it's not so much that we need deliverance out of it. There will come a time when we will cease to live here and we will go to be with him and continue to exist with him. It's not that we need to be delivered out of it. We need the strength and the endurance to be able to go through it. And that's actually what this is talking about here. And then, Hence that very, very powerful phrase, for your sake, we are all day long facing death. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. This isn't someone saying, hey, everything's fine and life is easy right now. He's saying, you know what? It's going to be difficult and it's hard. And indeed, some of us aren't going to make it through this particular phase alive. But there's something that we can have, a certain, certain hope that we can hold on to that doesn't lead to despair, doesn't lead to collapse, and is actually able to carry it through. Now, what I found, that's, uh, which I hadn't really thought of before as I was reading this recently, was it asked this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then it goes on to say, what may separate us from the love of Christ? It never answers the question, who? It says, what will separate us? Shall trouble or tribulation or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are what's, not who's. 
Now, in many cases, the reason I think the question's answered this way is there is a who behind that what. So there may be somebody wielding that sword. There may be somebody who's bringing about through their dominance and economic famine in our part of the world by holding resources back from it. Or, of course, there may not be one, but it's interesting that it actually addresses itself to that broader question. But here's what really uh, jumped out at me as I was looking at this recently. The very first two things it mentions here are shall trouble or hardship. Now, the word translated trouble there has the idea of being constrained. The word translated um, hardship means to be hemmed in, to be confined. And of course, that's why the English Standard Version actually translates, I think, this word distress, because when you when you hem in an animal, it's distress. That's the emotion it goes through. And if you think about it, the idea of being constrained and the idea of being hemmed in are two words which seem to speak so powerfully as to what, what we're actually dealing with right now. We are truly being constrained and we are truly being hemmed in. And even as we look ahead and hope for certain restrictions to be lifted, what's becoming very clear is they're not going to be lifted all at once and they're probably not going to be lifted as much as we would like. So how is it possible, therefore, then to continue when we actually find ourselves imprisoned in this kind of way? And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying once you've come into that relationship with Christ, even when you feel he isn't near, that isn't true. He is. And even when you feel that you're on your own, actually, you're not. He's still with you. And as you continue to wrestle with feeling, those kinds of feelings and that kind of wrestling, it is still possible to know intimacy and enjoy presence with him and indeed to have a fellowship with him that is able to carry and endure and actually go through all of this. That's what's being addressed here. Now, of course, the question is, how? How is that, how is that possible? And the answer is not because of ourselves. In verse 25, it says, we hope patiently. Now, this, there are two words for patience which are used in Greek. One is the patience of the strong. This is when you're in a position of strength, you're dealing with someone much weaker than you, maybe much less than you have, less authority, less position, less whatever it is. And you're finding it maybe frustrating or tiring listening to them. Well, the patience of the strong is when you're big enough to be able to give them the space and the time that they need in whatever fumbling way they're trying to process something or ask something or do something. You have a patience for them and a desire to help. Interestingly enough, God is often described that way in relationship to us. He is patient with us. Out of all of his strength, out of all of his knowledge and power, he is willing to patiently work with us. Now, there's a second word for patience, which is actually the patience of the weak. This is what we sometimes translate the ability to endure. Now, the way the um, Greeks handled this was fascinating. For them, that kind of um, patience was about courageous endurance, which is able to defy evil. Now, interestingly for them, of course, the source of such patience was yourself. You either develop that kind of courage yourself in order to confront and overcome, or you developed stoical indifference, because you can appear brave by simply not caring. If you don't care about your life, if you don't care about other people's lives, if you don't really care what happens, you can appear brave, but actually you're simply being reckless. And it's, but for them, those were the two sources. Either make yourself indifferent, cease to care, that will give you the bravery you need, or find the strength within yourself. Now, what we're told here in all the way throughout Scripture is we do not find that source of strength in ourselves, but we can find it with Christ. When, when we feel our strength has failed, when we feel that everything we have has been spent, when we feel there's nothing more left for us to give, he is able to minister and speak to us at that point. He is able to impart that wisdom and that strength and that courage to us. 
There are very few people in this world I've met who I've thought of as being courageous, who said they felt courage at the time. Rather, they felt an empowering and an ability to be able to push through, which maybe even surprised them in, in the moment. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Now, there are some people, of course, who when they hear this kind of thing, they think, well, this is why people are Christians, of course. It's a psychological crutch. In times of difficulty, when times are hard, you know, you've got this father figure that you dream up, that you invent, and somehow he's there for you, and it brings you comfort. And I'm glad it brings you comfort, but it's, it's delusional. It's not real. Now, that would be to make a very fatal error. Just because something is psychological in effect doesn't mean it's psychological in its cause. It's very simply illustrated. Imagine you're in a point of distress right now and I was able to put my arm around you. Let's imagine a scenario where you know for certain that I'm not carrying anything infectious and that, that you may be. But the fact that I'm willing to put my arm around you and in so doing, not to simply give you physical comfort, but maybe even experience the transmission of COVID-19 from you to me, that's going to bring comfort to you. It's going to bring an emotional and psychological comfort. But just because it's emotional and psychological in its effect doesn't mean that I'm a figment of your imagination. No, I am real. And that's how this works. The presence of a real person who loves you and cares for you, who puts your arm around you, can have a profound emotional and psychological effect. But just because it has an emotional psychological effect doesn't mean that the cause is. No, the cause is real. And that's what's being said here. God's love for us is real because God is real. And indeed, he has manifested himself and made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has stepped into this world in the most profound way. And indeed, that's going to be um, explored if you actually read through the rest of this chapter. What it's saying is that God loved this world and Jesus Christ, God himself, came into this world. And he put his arms around us. And as he did, our sin that we cannot see became his sin. That the burden that we had and that which we were suffering with was transferred to him. And all of the penalty and all of the consequence of that, all of that became his. And he took that to the cross and he bore that for us. He bore that sin. He bore that pain. He bore that brokenness. He bore that consequence. He bore the penalty which is due to any form of wrongdoing. All of that he took on onto himself on the cross and he paid for it all. And through his resurrection, he's not saying that these things don't matter, but he's saying he's been able to overcome them in order to get us out of the debt, out of the hole, out of the mess, out of the difficulty. And now by his spirit, he's willing to put his arms around us too. I'm wondering if you know that comfort at this time. Maybe this is a time where you yourself need to be calling out to God afresh and anew, even amongst all of the constraint, among, constraint, all of the difficulties, all of the challenges, maybe even life itself, physical life seems to be hanging by a thread. This is a time in which we can genuinely know the real God who is present with us in suffering who isn't coming simply to deliver us out of it, but to give us a different type of endurance. And, we, and we have a certain hope. And why is it certain? Because there's nothing that can take it away. The very worst that could happen is that our heart ceases to beat. But when our heart ceases to beat, we don't cease to exist. If we put our trust in him and if we know him, we will go to be with him forever. And it will be glorious. It's interesting how rarely we seem to talk about eternal life anymore or even think about it or wonder if there is a life after death. It seems many people at many levels assume there is, but they're not sure really what it looks like. What the Bible makes clear is entrance into that eternal life isn't based on what you know. It isn't based on what you've achieved or anything that you may have done. It's based simply on a, having a relationship with the landowner. 
If you know the person who created it and brought it into existence, if you're in relationship with him, he will welcome you into it. It's his and it's his gift to give. And it's not presumptuous to know you'll be there any more than it is presumptuous than if some great king were to invite you to a meal knowing you'll gain entrance to the palace, not because of anything that you have, but simply because of the one you invite, who has invited you. And the one who invites us into eternal life is the God of God, the Lord of Lords, and the one who created everything. And he asks us to come into this relationship with him. It's the most precious and valuable thing that's able to sustain us. And even when we feel he's not there, that doesn't mean his arm still isn't around us. Sometimes we're so caught up in our pain and our sorrow, we're not even aware of the one who is comforting us until eventually we've calmed down enough to actually see what's going on around us. He is with us and he remains with us through all of this. Now, of course, there's another fear that's also addressed here in this passage, which is very profound. It's to do with this whole idea of loss. We, we feel sad when we've lost something. And even if it's just a thing, a watch, a pen, uh, some meaningful thing given to us by a parent or a grandparent or a friend. And when, we, we, when we've lost it, the reason we feel sad, the reason why we may feel distressed is we know we'll never see it again. And it's that feeling of knowing I'll never see it. If I knew I could recover it, if I knew I could see it, but it would just be in a few hours time, the distress would be nothing like what you would go through. And that, of course, that's what we struggle with with people. When we talk of losing someone, what we're saying is, I want to see them. I won't see them again. But of course, that isn't true. If the resurrection is real, if Jesus Christ died on the cross, but not only that, was raised to life again on the third day and has the power to raise the dead and to grant eternal life, anyone who is in Jesus is never lost. We will see them again. We will be with them again. We will have time again. There will be fellowship once more. That's one of the most incredible things of the promises of heaven. The the, the certainty and the promise of seeing those which we love and know in the future. Now, of course, the primary reason we want to be there isn't because of them, it's because of God. It's because of what he has done for us, the way in which he has won our hearts, and our primary desire will be to be with him. But we will be with him together with a great cloud of witnesses, and in that sense, no Christian when they die is ever lost. So we don't need to live with that fear, and that fear doesn't need to dominate our life. So the message of the resurrection and the promise and the hope that it brings is absolutely crucial if we're going to be able to get through this world well. So many of our current leaders are addressing our interests, but we also need leadership in this world right now that will also raise our sights to something bigger and greater and grander, not just for our own lives, but also for this world. As I said, we need something that will raise our sights. And this is exactly what the hope of the gospel does. I was asked to speak to a few leaders last week, and as I was preparing, I'd been reading out of Psalm 40 that day in my quiet time. And in Psalm 40, I read the words, I have told the glad news of deliverance. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your, your deliverance in my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness as I should. And as I reflected on that, I thought, you know what? Right now, as Christians, we're being called to do several things. The first one is to pray and to call out to God and to ask out for his help. If this crisis had happened at any other point in the past, then there would have been this huge outcry from leadership to say, there's only so much we can do. Can we invite you now to also call out to him? So let's call out to him. I don't know if you've seen the movies Dunkirk um, um, or Darkest Hour. They're two amazing films. But the reason why I was disappointed with both is they've airbrushed the spiritual history. Because there's another narrative behind those two films. As hundreds of thousands of troops were looking at assured destruction on a beach hundreds of miles from home, a few days before the rescue operation was launched, the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, 
went to Winston Churchill and the King and suggested for a national day of humiliation. Now, the King didn't like that particular, uh, Winston Churchill didn't like that message, but it went ahead. The people had no idea what they were praying for because it was never shared with them. But if you go online and you type in National Day of Prayer 1940, you will see the black and white footage of people standing in long lines right down the street, queuing to get into churches in order to pray. And here's what they prayed. They didn't pray, Lord, vindicate us, we're right, defeat our enemy, help us overcome. That's not what they prayed. Here's what they prayed. Lord, forgive us for trusting in ourselves. Forgive us for being overwhelmed with our own sense of success. Forgive us our pride. Lord, we humble ourselves and we come before you and we ask you to remember your mercy at this time and to remember us. And a few days after that, two things happened. There were the calmest seas in a generation on the English Channel. That's why all those small fishing boats were able to go there and back. They wouldn't have been able to make the journey without a calm sea. But there was a second factor which was just as important. There was a thick, heavy cloud cover over the, the, the sea at the time, which stopped enemy planes picking off all of those little boats with their guns. And because of that, over 95% of all the people there, or whatever the number was, is some huge number, were actually successfully rescued and brought back to the United Kingdom. It's one of the most remarkable um, escapes in history. And afterwards, William Temple, referring to this, said it was an example of a modern-day miracle. We need to cry out to God today to turn the tide and to bring something new. We can all pray. We can all be involved. There's also a need for us to be able to provide, to provide care, to provide masks, to provide food, to provide financial aid, to maybe pay people in our domestic employ who um, uh, aren't able to work because they're in lockdown or to help our neighbor because they don't have an income right now or to think about how we can help our employees so they don't become dependent on the state. But whatever it is, we also need to provide. But there's one other thing we need to do and that's what Psalm 40 talks about here. We need to proclaim. We actually need to tell and share this hope and this good news. This is what turns everything around. Without the hope of resurrection, there is no ultimate hope. We are faced with our mortality and the question is, is this it? Is this the only world we have? And the answer is no, this isn't the only world we have. This is the world we live in, but there is another world that we are living for. Now, of course, it's entirely possible to look at everything which is going on and saying, well, why, why, why is this happening and what is going on? Is it some kind of judgment over us? I'm not sure if it's a judgment over us, but it certainly creates space for us to judge ourselves. And I think many of us are looking at our lives right now and thinking maybe it needs to look a little bit different. Perhaps that's no bad thing in and of itself. And of course, the things are very complicated. One of my colleagues, Professor John Lennox, recently wrote this little book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? And in it, he just makes one quote from one academic, which I find very interesting. The academic's name is Peter Pollard, and he wrote a paper, academic paper for the World Economic Forum about viruses. And here's what he says. He says, the word virus strikes terror into our hearts. It conjures up images, and he goes on about, that bring disease and death. But the, 20, but the 21 viral types that wreak havoc with the human body represent an insignificant fraction of the 100 million viral types on Earth. Most viruses are actually vital to our existence. The sheer number of these good viruses is astonishing. The concentration in a productive lake or river is 100 million per milliliter. That's more than four times the population of Australia squeezed into a quarter of a teaspoon of water. Viruses are not living organisms. They are simply bits of genetic material covered in protein that behave like parasites. They attach to their target and they replicate. It is the high combination of high bacterial growth and viral infection that keeps ecosystems functioning and they are a critical part of inorganic nutri nutrient recycling. 
So is it entirely possible that even things which we now see malfunctioning, causing huge harm in this world, were originally intended for something different and originally intended for something good? Is it possible that something's gone wrong in the world? And that's also partly something here that's been addressed in Romans 8 when it talks about all creation is groaning. Is it possible that because we've turned away from God and there's not only have we messed up our lives, but we've messed up the environment that we're in, that we're now living with the consequences of that and we're now looking for hope in it? And what we're told is that God's love for us is that whatever um, may what, that we are responsible for, he wants to rescue us. And whatever we're not responsible for, he also wants to ultimately help deliver us. There will be a new heaven and there also will be a new world. There is a time and there is a huge need right now for the hope of the gospel to be shared because it helps give the strength that we need. Corona, coronavirus, before it took the name COVID-19, the reason it was called the coronavirus was it appears to be wearing a crown. It's to do with the shape of the proteins around the edge. And that raises this very important question, and John Lennox refers to it also in his book. Who will ultimately rule or have control over us? Will it be fear? Will we be dominated by something like that? Or will it be something else? We worship a saviour who, as one hymn writer said, was crowned with thorns so that he may then crown us with eternal life that somehow through his cross, we worship a different savior, someone who was not crowned by human hands and therefore he cannot possibly be, de be dethroned. And as Ravi Zacharias loves to quote Malcolm Muggeridge, who's also helped establish a kingdom that human hands have not built and therefore they cannot destroy. There is a certain hope and an anchor we can have in times of trouble. His name is Jesus Christ and when we come into that relationship with him, it's not that we don't go through the pain and it's not that we don't experience it, but that we have a hope in it and through it and an ultimate assurance that whatever may happen, we can still be found with him and in him. The cross and the resurrection has opened up a way. Several years ago, it was many years ago when I was a young child, my mother asked me to meet one of her friends. I, I did what most children do. I was polite. I stayed as long as I had to. And then as soon as enough socially acceptable time had passed, I then said, look, will you please um, excuse me, I need to go and do my homework. That's the one excuse I knew my mother couldn't deny me because uh, she's not going to tell me not to do it. And after later that day, my mother said, I'm surprised. I thought you'd want to talk to Claire longer. And I said, well, mum, I don't know Claire. Who is she? And my mother said, have I never told you the story? And then she shared the story with me. Um, my, uh, there were 13 months between, in age between myself and my younger brother. And she had taken us to get us out of the house, even though it was a winter day with a friend. Um, they were sat on a bench near a river, and I had learned to walk at a very early age. And you may have seen it, you know, little toddlers, you know, after a couple of weeks of learning to walk, they can move off at great speed. And while she was looking at her friend talking, I just raced off towards the edge of the river and fell in. Well, my mother heard a woman scream, and she looked up and saw this unknown woman, fully clothed, wearing a winter coat, running as fast as she could down the path by the side of the river, and then, to my mother's amazement, jumped into the river. It seemed like an act of insanity. It seemed like the most crazy thing to do until this woman stood up holding me above her head. And at this point, my mother began running. And now she ran to the river and she picked me and pulled me up and then she helped this woman out. And my mother said, this was that woman who jumped into the river. And when I heard what had happened, I said, is there any way you could invite her back? Because I'd like to say thank you. I'd like to see her again. God loves us so much that he's jumped into the messy rivers of our lives. He has literally jumped into all of this mess in order to lift us up. When my mother was telling, retelling me the story recently, she said, Michael, the most frightening bit of the whole thing is that as she lifted you out of the water, you were laughing 
you had no idea of the mortal danger in and the fact that you were just this far away from death. And I was thinking, wow, that just says so much of this world, especially one where we're struggling even with the weight of our own sin and that which we have done wrong. We can be in so much trouble and we can be completely oblivious to it. We could be that far away from death. But the amazing thing is, is that, to, that Jesus Christ has jumped into this world to pull us out. Will we allow him to take us? Will we ask him and say, yes, Lord, I need the help that you can do for me? We worship a God in the Bible who knows our fears, who hears our prayers, who forgives us when we fail and who lifts us when we fall and is enabled to give strength in order to overcome despair. That is who we can turn to in this time and that is who has been referred to. That is why we can be more than conquerors with Christ because whatever we go through and however it may end, he is able to lead us through to the other side to be with him and that is the source of hope that we can have and I hope that is the hope of source, uh, the source of hope that I hope that you will all know this day. I want to thank you again for the privilege of being able to share some of these things with you. I look forward to the time of Q&A, but I'm wondering if I could just wrap up this time with a short time of prayer, um, and then um, you'll be taken into the rest um, of the service together. Father, I want to thank you that you know us and you love us. Lord, I want to thank you that you not only jumped into a river to save us, but you stepped into this world that was also full of something that we cannot see, Lord, that is also able not simply to end a physical life, but an eternal life, sin. And you put your arms around us on the cross. Lord, thank you that you are willing to have that transference of that to yourself and that you are willing to pay the price. Lord, not just for what we had caught, but also for what we had done. And that you took the full force of all of the consequence of that. And we thank you that through your death and resurrection, you offer us a new life in you and we need that life. Lord, where we've drifted away, we want to come back. Lord, when we're messing around with things we shouldn't be messing around with and we're so close just to losing something that you gave us, Lord, we want to turn back to you and say, Lord, we're sorry, will you forgive me? Lord, give me life and give me the assurance of life to come. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to the time of Q&A after the 5 p.m. service. And it's just wonderful to be back with my friends in KL. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Michael, for that amazing message. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come right now. Let's pray together. You might want to put your hands out in front of you right now. And we just pray, come, Holy Spirit, would you fill us again with your presence and your peace? Just receive.